Thank you, Randy, for leading us this morning. As the majority of you know, we are in the process of looking for a music pastor, and Randy, for his full-time job, serves as a professor of law at LSU. But Randy, I must confess, brother, we might consider a change for you in vocation. Uh, Randy said to me the other day, if Woodlawn pays what the law school pays, I'll joyfully come. I told him, so would I. I, If you're visiting with us this morning, let me extend a warm welcome to you as well, as Pastor Travis noted. We also want to encourage you, if you're looking at your worship guides, the section following the last song we just sung will be a place for you to take notes. We want to encourage you to be a good listener and participant in the preaching of God's Word, and there is a place for you to write notes on this sermon. It is our habit here at Woodlawn Baptist to take books of the Bible and to preach through those books, for we believe that God has spoken to us through His Word, and that if you and I want to know who is God, we know Him through His Word, and so we give our time and attention to preaching through books of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, and currently, we are in the book of Exodus, to which we will return tomorrow, uh, next Sunday. This Sunday, as I do every year, I was scheduled to do this last Sunday, but today, every year I give a challenge to us as a church on a topic, a focus, of which I would like for us to give our time and attention to in the course of the year. Primarily, those are issues of spiritual discipline. And as you might have guessed from having already read the text of Scripture for this morning and through uh, our brother's comments on the service today, we're going to focus on prayer. And Jesus, here in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, right in the center of the Sermon on the Mount, there are some 114 or 116 Greek lines prior to the Sermon on the Mount, and then following the Sermon on the Mount, an additional 114 Greek lines. So right in the center, right at the heart of what Jesus is communicating in this Sermon on the Mount is this incredible lesson on prayer, this statement by Christ on prayer. According to a recent Pew Research Center poll, fewer than half of American adults pray daily. And this number has been in a steady decline from the past 15 years, from 58% of respondents in 2007 to 45% of the respondents in 2021. Barna last year issued another study on prayer and further noted that 94% of Americans American adults who have prayed at least once in the last three months have done so solely by themselves. Christians are praying, but they are doing it by themselves. A Barner Research writer noted, quote, prayer is by far the most common spiritual practice, practice among Americans, but people pray mostly alone It is a solitary activity defined primarily by the immediate needs and concerns of the individual. Corporate prayer and corporate needs are less compelling drivers in people's prayer lives. But he asked, what would it look like to begin to broaden the scope of those prayer lives? To consider the power of corporate prayer when more than one are gathered in God's name, the American church is functionally prayerless when it comes to corporate prayer. You remember from last week I noted in this text of Scripture on the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly Jesus' comments here on prayer, to which I'd like to turn your attention for just a moment, Notice at the very beginning here in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in this manner, notice these first person plural pronouns, our Father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give 
us our daily bread and forgive us our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And Jesus' reflection on this prayer and his communication to his people and how we should pray, you hear in the very words of Christ this corporate nature of prayer. And here, Jesus teaches us this eternal truth, our prayer life, in order to be obedient, must be done with a right heart and a right motive. You'll notice from the very beginning of this text, Jesus is concerned about a right heart and a right motive. In fact, he gives us two examples. He gives us the example of the hypocrites. They don't, write, they don't have the right heart and motive. And then he gives us the example of the Gentiles. Neither do the Gentiles have a right heart or a right motive. But this should be no concern to us or surprise to us that Jesus is concerned about a right heart or a right motive because for the last three Januaries, we've been looking at the Beatitudes, which began this collection of sermon sayings for us in the Sermon on the Mount. And what is Jesus concerned with in the Beatitudes? Jesus is concerned with a right heart and a right motive in the Beatitudes. But following the Beatitudes, come now just to chapter 5 and look in verse 21 and again in verse 27 and again in verse 31 and verse 33 and verse 38. Look what Jesus is concerned with there. Jesus is concerned with the heart, what one does. It's not only murder that Jesus is concerned with. Jesus is also concerned with anger. It's not only adultery that Jesus is concerned with. Jesus is concerned with lust in your heart. When it comes to this issue of prayer, Jesus is continuing to reveal to you and me, it is at the end of the day, all about our heart's posture before him. And notice what he does at the very beginning of this collection of three statements. Jesus is going to give a statement on giving. Jesus is going to give a statement here in Matthew chapter 6 on praying. And then he's going to conclude with a statement on fasting. Look, out, look at how these begin in chapter 6 verse 1. Beware of practicing your what? Your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have what? No reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is the heart of what Jesus wants to communicate right here in the very center of the Sermon on the Mount as he looks at giving, praying, and fasting. But neither should it be a surprise to us that at this point in the text, Jesus continues to be concerned with righteousness. Go back with me just for a quick moment to Matthew chapter 5 and verses 17 through verse 20. And look what he says in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in this text, in the totality of the Sermon on the Mount, is concerned with a greater righteousness, a greater righteousness that you and I might live out. Now, you remember from last week, just real quickly, I'm not talking about imputed righteousness. 
We're not talking about forensic righteousness. We're not talking about righteousness that transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're not talking about a righteousness that saves us. What we're talking about here is a lived out righteousness. What we're talking about here is the practice of our lives, the spiritual disciplines which are sown into our hearts and the way in which we live before the Lord. In fact, we see that very clearly in these three acts. Giving is an act of righteousness. Praying is an act of righteousness. Fasting is an act of righteousness. And Jesus is concerned about our greater righteousness. For what purpose? So that you and I might receive a reward from whom? Our Father in heaven. Now notice this just real quick in your Bibles. Look with me real quickly. We get to giving, chapter 6, verse 2, and look at the end of verse 4. So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will do what? Now notice, when we give with, from a right posture, when we give from a right heart, when we give from a greater righteousness, if you will, there is a reward. All right? Look with me in chapter 6, verse 5, at the very end of verse 5. Truly I say to you, they have received their what? reward, but notice at the end of verse 6, and your father who sees in secret will do what? Friends, when you pray with a greater righteousness, guess what Jesus says your prayer life yields for you? A reward from whom? your Father in heaven. And then look at very quickly at the end of verse, uh, the, the very end of verse 18, and your Father who's, who sees in secret will do what? Reward you. He will reward you for the practice of greater righteousness of fasting. And all three of these, the primary issue is our heart's posture before God not the place. So look what Jesus says beginning here in chapter 6, verse 5, as he moves into the Lord's Prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now let me ask you a question. Contextually, what is the reward toward or do the hypocrites? What is their reward? The praise of others. They've been seen by others. This is the problem. Are the hypocrites gathering in the street corners and by the synagogues to pray with a heart that is in a right posture before the Lord? No. They're praying for the praise of others. It might be, as Jesus would say to us in the Gospel of John, or John would say to us reflecting on Jesus' ministry in John chapter 11, for they love the praise that comes or the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the problem for the hypocrites. They love to pray in a manner not to be heard by God, but to be seen by man. What's the problem for the Gentiles? Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. 
And then Jesus says to us, pray like this. Pray like this. Jesus gives us two examples of prayer done in the wrong motive, with the wrong heart, with the wrong posture before God. Now, is Jesus saying to us that the only way in which we can rightly pray to God is in secret? Well, how do we know that? Because the text says, do it in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will give you a reward. So, Pastor, I've been waiting for this day for you to stop those pastoral prayers on Sunday morning that take seven, eight, nine, ten minutes. I'm so glad you're going into your prayer closet now. We can beat the Presbyterians down the road to the restaurants. Is Jesus saying praying and community is wrong? Well, if that's the case, Jesus himself erred. Jesus prayed in community, did he not? Jesus went to the garden with the disciples, for example, and he prayed in community with others. Is Jesus saying to us against the Gentiles that we should only have short prayers? And you think again, aha, pastor, I've been waiting for you to preach this. Get to the point in your prayers, right? It's interesting, Jesus is, and can I take a time out right here? Don't count this against the sermon link, time out. To whom is the book of Matthew written? A Gentile audience or a Jewish audience? Jewish, you guys are really smart. It's written to a Jewish audience. So isn't it interesting that Jesus is here using the language of the Gentiles? Don't be like the Gentiles. Now, who were the Gentiles, by the way? They were, thank you, Miss Alice, they were the pagans. They were the pagans. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. To whom is Jesus talking? Is Jesus talking to a Gentile audience or to a Jewish audience? He's talking to a Jewish audience. It's not missed on the hearers in the first century of these Jews. They are like the Gentiles. They are pagan. Why are they pagan? Because they've not believed rightly on Jesus. How do the Gentiles pray? Well, we have examples of how the Gentiles pray already from the text of Scripture. If you'll think with me for just a moment, back to 1 Kings chapter 18. You remember the story? Elijah is before the prophets of Baal, and they're going to have a duel here. Uh, whose God is real? Which God can actually rain down fire from heaven? So what does Elijah say to him? Tell you what, boys. You guys take some time, cry out to your God, and make him light the altar on fire. So what did, what did the prophets of Baal do? Well, you can go back and read the text. They, they start crying out to God, this same phrase, and the Bible says that they cried out to God until noon. Same phrase, over and over and over and over again. Did it work? No, so what did they start doing? They started cutting themselves, jumping up and down. So now Elijah's having a field day with him. He's laughing at him at this point. And what happens? 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 36 and 37. Elijah cries out with one powerful voice directly to the, to the Lord. Oh, Lord, our God. And what does God do? He sets the altar ablaze. Why? Jesus says in this text, the Lord already knows what you need even before you ask Him. You know what He's saying? In our prayer lives, friends, we don't have to be like the pagans who are seeking to try to wake up a dead God. We don't need to be like the pagans who are seeking to manipulate a God into responding and answering in the way that they desire. We don't need to seek to persuade a God who does not know. Our Father is a good Father. And what will Jesus go on to tell the people in the Sermon on the Mount? 
Don't even be anxious, friends. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. It doesn't add anything to your day. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. So how do we pray, church? Not with a wrong heart. How do we pray? With a right heart. Out of obedience to the Lord. How do we pray? Jesus gave it to us right here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Hear the words of the Lord. How do we pray? We first acknowledge God's providence. Then we ask And the concluding marks of this, for God's provision. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then we have Jesus' commentary at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. How do we pray? We acknowledge God's providence. Look what he says, the beginning, our Father. One of the things we see in these two words is this communal aspect of our prayer life, our Father, but we also learn something about God. He is indeed Father. Jesus, or God, referred to as Father is mentioned 44 times in the book of Matthew, 17 times in the Lord's, in the Sermon on the Mount. We're now, at this point, at the ninth saying of God as Father in the Sermon on the Mount. The concept of God being a Father is primary in the Sermon on the Mount. What do we learn about God as our Father? We learn that God has called you and me to live our lives in community with one another. God doesn't just belong to one of you or to me. He belongs to all of us. He is our Father. We also learn that He's a Father. A Father is an indication of a position of of power. Psalm 115 says that God is in the heavens and He does as He pleases. He is in a position of power. He's in a position of prominence. There is no one greater than the Father. But we also learn from the New Testament that there's one thing that our Father does, and we learn it from Jesus himself. He knows how to make provision for his people. He is a good giver. For the scripture says, every good and perfect thing comes from where? The Father above. The expression of this moment, friends, is a gift from God. The joy of the breath that you just took is a gift from God. The expression that you will have after church with family is a gift from God. And who is this God? Notice what the text says. He is the one who reigns in heaven. Make no mistake about it. There is only one God in his place of power, his place of rule, his place of supremacy is in the heavens. And by the way, notice notice this in the text of Scripture real quick. The Sermon on the Mount, the, the Lord's Prayer begins where? In heaven. And it concludes where? On earth. 
protect us from the evil one. Friends, even in the way in which Matthew has constructed this prayer and Jesus has given it to us, Jesus is acknowledging that there is not a sphere on earth upon which God himself does not reign supreme. Our Father, the only one who has the power and the prominence and the ability and the provision to respond to his people, our Father who is in heaven, we want to tell you a few things about yourself. We want to acknowledge your providence. We want to acknowledge your primacy. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is a communication of the holiness, the very character, the very nature of who this God is. Jesus says when we pray, our prayer life ought to begin with an acknowledgement of, of who God is. We are at the end of the day coming before the almighty maker of the heavens and the earth. We are coming before the only one who can at any time make provision for his people. We want his name to be holy. We want the revelation of his name, of his character, to be made known as holy. What are we asking God when we ask him for his name to be hallowed, for his name to be holy? We are saying, Lord, we want the advancement of this great and glorious God to be made known around the world as one who is himself holy. And by the way, friends, this is not a change in the way in which God desires for his people to know him. We go all the way back to the Old Testament, and what do we learn in this revelation of who God is to his people? We see it revealed in Exodus chapter 32, for example. He is one who is loving He's kind, he's gracious, he's holy. And because he's holy, the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 32 that he will not allow one sin. Jesus, God, will not allow one sin to go unpunished. And as we move into the book of Leviticus, and we get these law codes, Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44, the Lord says to the nation of Israel concerning these law codes, why should they follow these law codes? God says, because I am holy, you be holy. The very nature and character of God is one who is holy. And friends, when we think about prayer, prayer should always begin in our hearts with an acknowledgement of exactly who God is. And notice even in the structure of this prayer, how acknowledging the character and the nature of God should so shape our prayer life. I begin with an acknowledgement of the holiness of God, but then look at this second petition. Your kingdom come. There is in this communication of prayer a desire for God's provision now and an acknowledgement of God's provision in the future. We'll see the now here in just a few moments. Give us this day our daily bread. But notice here Jesus is saying that on the heart and the mind of a believer should be the desire for the kingdom of God to finally be established completely, totally, fully on earth. This was the hope of Isaiah, was it not? Think Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 11. You come to the very conclusion of Isaiah, and the majority of the conclusion of Isaiah is eschatological, looking toward the future, a future reign in which God himself will come and establish himself among his people, and he will be with his people forever. This is the cry of the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 19, 20, and 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And what happens 
with the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth? What happens with the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth? Isaiah saw it in Isaiah chapter 25, and John the Revelator reveals it to us again in Revelation chapter 19. There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more tears. For God himself, the text says, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, our praying ought to be future-oriented. God, would you establish your kingdom now? Christ, would you return now? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. We are praying for God to establish his work through his gospel. What is the will of God? That none should perish, but that all should come to faith in Christ. What is the will of God? That you and I might know him through his word. We are praying that God's divine directive and will might be accomplished and our lives, and the lives of God's people, that God might establish through his church this coming kingdom, for there's a sense of which this kingdom is here already, but not yet, right? For example, this morning, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have experienced the kingdom and will of God. And yet, we live in the now. And the now is not the yet. For we are waiting for the yet to come, the full revelation of God's kingdom to be established. But friends, as Jesus prays here, we also desire for God's will to be accomplished. Now Jesus promised that he was coming again. He is coming. But in the now... We still long for the will of God to be accomplished in our lives and in the world. And Jesus says, you ought to pray with an acknowledgement of God's providence. For see, friends, when we acknowledge God's providence, then when God accomplishes something in our lives that isn't quite like what we anticipated, when God does something in our family that we didn't quite anticipate, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death that we were not expecting, we don't do that groping in darkness as those who have no hope. We do it as those full of hope, knowing that God, regardless of the circumstances, is accomplishing his will. Is your prayer God-centered? Is your prayer life guided, shaped by the revelation of who God is? And notice in the second half, we move from acknowledging the providence of God to asking for God's provision. And by the way, there's another well-known tablet in the Old Testament that moves from heaven to earth or from God to humanity. Anybody else know what that tablet is? The Ten Commandments. Might it be no surprise that the Lord's Prayer is patterned after the Ten Commandments. And now Jesus pulls us into the here and now. Here is the way in which we are to ask the Lord for our human needs. Give us this day our daily bread. We're reminded through this communication, friends, that God is the one who makes provision for his people. Do you live your life daily with a constant awareness that you have nothing except that which God has given you? 
By the way, this concept is somewhat hard for those of us who live in the West, and particularly in the West in a certain era of time. If we were living in the West, say back in 1600s, it wouldn't be the case. Half the time, I'm not praying for the Lord to give me daily bread. I'm asking for the Lord to give me bread 30 years down the road that my 401k might be really large. But what about today? Are you living your life at this moment? At this second? with an awareness, with an acknowledgement that unless God, we, you, I, shall have nothing. And then we see this beautifully depicted as the church assembles in the book of Acts, both in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. God was making provision for the people How? Through the provision of other believers. See, friends, give us our daily bread. It's very communal, is it not? We're not only praying about my needs, I, we're also praying about our. Give us this day our daily bread. Was this not the heart cry of the wilderness generation? In Exodus chapter 16, how did God provide for them? He provided what? Manna. But notice the trajectory of the use of bread in the Gospel of Matthew. We start with bread before we ever get to Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 4. And what's happening in Matthew chapter 4? Jesus is going through temptation by Satan. And do you remember one of those temptations from Satan? Turn these stones into what? Bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Twice. Twice. Following the Lord's Prayer, we're going to see bread again. And you know those two stories. Jesus is going to feed the masses. He's going to feed them bread and fish. But we get to the concluding part of Matthew's gospel, and we're going to see bread again. But when we see bread again, we're going to see Jesus as the bread of life, as he celebrates the Lord's Supper with his people. And friends, I can't help but think when Jesus says to his people in Matthew's gospel, as they read this gospel, give us our daily bread that it's also an intimate prayer for the bread of life, Christ, to be our sustenance, our source of strength, and our power on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. Is that your heart's cry? Lord, Christ, I need more of you. Give us Jesus today, for we so desperately need him. Give us this day our daily bread as we forgive us and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. If we go over to Luke, Luke uses the more uh, common phrase of sin, forgive us of our sins, as we have also forgiven those who have sinned against us. Sin is indeed a debt that must be paid. We looked at this a little bit last week of how we live rightly with this aspect of forgiveness in the context of community. You remember Jesus at the end of this is going to say, and if you'll do this, you'll get a reward? What was the reward for those last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 who didn't show love and forgiveness in the context of God's people? 
their reward was sickness or death. Let's jump to the book of Acts real quick. And by the way, if you missed that reference, go back and listen to last week's sermon, and you'll understand the comment I just made. Let's come to the book of Acts. There were two characters. They didn't have... They didn't have the heart of the community. They had the greed of the individual. Their names, Ananias and Sapphira. And what they do? They lied. And what was their reward? Death. See, friends, there is no virtue among God's people that causes you to be more like Christ than that of forgiveness. And when we don't forgive, what does it communicate? You've not been forgiven because you can't express something you've never experienced. This is why this concept of forgiveness lies at the very heart of the gospel narrative. The forgiveness of which you and I so desperately desire is the forgiveness that those who have sinned of us desire. We come to Matthew chapter 18 and Jesus gives this wonderful statement on on sin, does he not? And how how we walk through a process. If your brother offends you, what are you to do? Go to him. If he doesn't listen, take somebody else with you. If he doesn't listen, then tell the whole church. If he doesn't listen to that, then treat him as a tax collector and a sinner. And what is the very next parable Jesus tells us? What's the very next story Jesus gives us? He tells us the parable of the unforgiven servant. Remember? He owed a lot. And he had that debt forgiven. But what did he go and do? He went and rounded up a person that owed him a third of what he owed to the master, and he imprisoned him. What's Jesus saying? That's what we do when we're unwilling to practice forgiveness. We are imprisoning imprisoning ourselves and others, if you will. Forgive us as we forgive others. And then notice this last one, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Not only forgive us now, Lord, of our current sins, but God, protect me from sin in the future. Protect me from following my own idolatrous heart in the future. Lord, protect me from following the things that that I want to do that are contrary to to your word. Protect me, Lord, from the evil one. And who is this evil one? The devil. He's like a roaring lion. What is he seeking to do? Devour us. This is the shape of our prayers. From heaven to earth. From an acknowledgement of God's providence to an asking of God's provision. But friends, don't miss it. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying to you and me, if we'll just start tomorrow a prayer ministry in the life of our church and and film it and, and, and sell the narrative to all these other churches around us, that we'll have wonderful success. Jesus isn't saying that if you'll go home tonight and establish in the context of your family a two hour prayer meeting every night, that you'll receive a reward in heaven. Why? Jesus is far more concerned about your heart and my heart than he is our actions. So you can give, you can pray, and you can fast, and you can still hear these words of Jesus, depart from me, 
you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. What Jesus is concerned with is my heart and your heart and our hearts together. But for the sake of argument this morning, that we are a people of God who have our hearts and a right posture before the Lord, how can we, over the course of this next year, collectively do a better job that we might practice the Lord's prayer in our gathering? I'd like to share with you several ways that we as a pastoral staff and staff would like to lead us to live out our lives over the course of this next year to increase our prayer life corporately and by extension, individually. First, we're going to start once a month on Sunday nights hosting a prayer meeting. Every month, we'll suspend whatever activities are going on on a Sunday evening. And once a month, we're going to come together as a corporate body and pray. We're going to acknowledge God's providence and ask for God's provision. And I'd like to ask you that you make participation and those prayer gatherings a priority. In the fall, in our life groups, we're gonna launch an initiative going through a book called A Praying Church. And we're gonna ask you in the context of our life groups that you would weave in this study of prayer together, that as a life group, you might increase the effectiveness of your praying in terms of your life group, but then also that that will lead to a greater effectiveness in your own individual lives. Once a quarter, now in April, again this summer as we go through the Psalms, again in September, and then again at the end of the year, we're going to focus a Sunday morning text around prayer to encourage you and me and us through the text of Scripture, to be praying together. And we're going to work through our Sunday school ministry to do what they used to do in the old days. Some of you will remember. How many of you have ever participated in a cottage prayer meeting? Or you raise your hand. Thank you, Ms. Francis. Thank you. It doesn't tell anything about your age, because I did so as well, okay? We're going to host through our Sunday school ministry, by cottage prayer meeting, we mean gatherings in people's homes for the purpose of prayer. Travis, through student and college ministry, and Lynn, through children's ministry, are also going to be looking at ways that we can increase our prayer time together through ministries that we already have going on. We want to pray as a church. And lastly, I want to give you a challenge that you make a that you make prayer a priority in your home. If you're not currently spending time with one another, we want to encourage you to do that. Calendar two or three days a week, put it on your calendar. We do what we want to do, do we not? Calendar a time of prayer that is non-negotiable for your family. We not only want to encourage prayer corporately, we want to encourage prayer individually. Why? Not for the purpose of pleasing anyone, but for our Father who sees for he will give a reward. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the grace that you have extended to us through Christ. We thank you for the example of Christ in this prayer that he has given to us. And we ask, Lord, that we as your people 
might live the example of Christ in the way we pray. Would you take a few moments, friend, where you're seated and reflect on the preaching of God's word this morning? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you believed in Jesus? Have you trusted in this bread of life? It would be impossible for you to have a prayer life honoring to the Lord apart from Christ. If you're here today, friend, and you've never trusted in Christ, we would plead with you today, believe in Jesus. How's your prayer life? Are you being intentional to spend time with the Lord? No, we're not asking you to carve out three hours a day. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Are you acknowledging God's providence and asking for God's provision? How might you be an instrument to encourage prayer in the context of our gathering? One way all of us could do that is by faithfully participating in our monthly prayer gatherings. How might you do that through your Sunday school, through your life group, through your friend group? just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. Friend, if you're here and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We'd be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. If you'd like for one of us to pray with you, that the truths of this text might resonate in your heart, we'd be glad to pray with you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. God, as we respond to you now, may our response be pleasing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?